I put together this little package. Uh, I don't know that it is exactly like it was it was given to John. I wasn't there. And I missed out on his vision. But I think this is a reasonable facsimile of of what we're talking about. And I thought if we had something physical in our hands to look at that it might help us uh, to understand when we're talking about scrolls and bowls and, and all of this stuff. So if you didn't get one, we have some more up here. We're beginning in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Uh, and here we're going to observe something that is very dramatic, something that has taken place between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And the rapture is probably the only possible explanation for the shift in the emphasis that we have here. And so we'll get to look at the reasons for this conclusion, as well as John's vision of heaven with the throne as its focus of worship. When we last met last week and we last opened our Bibles to the book of Revelation, our attention was on the church here on this earth. We need to understand that that last church that we looked at, Laodicea, represents what the church is going to be on earth just before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes back for His own. And as we begin to read chapter 4, we will now discover that the church is no longer here. The church is now in heaven. Now, although the rapture is not specifically mentioned in the book of Revelation, it is clearly alluded to uh, in this section of the book. In fact, it's the only possible explanation that we can give for this particular emphasis. We learn that the inspired uh, outline of the book of Revelation was given to us in, in Revelation, the first chapter, and verse 19. We'll go back and refresh our memory there. That John was told, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. He was told to write what you've seen. This is a reference to John that we saw in, in verses 1 through 18 of that first chapter. We're told that John was in the Spirit in the first chapter, verse 10. We're told that he saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of them was one like the Son of Man. And now we are told that John, how John reacted to this sight, this vision of Christ. John was told to write the things which he had seen. He was told to write the things that are. This included chapter 2 and chapter 3, referring to the seven churches. We know this panoramic view of church history spans the time between Pentecost and the rapture of the church. So basically, the first section of chapter 1 of this book emphasized what John saw while in the Spirit. The second section of this uh, book is in chapter 2 and 3, refers to the churches. These are the things that are. And then this third chapter, or this third section of the book, is designated as the things that will be, the things that will take place, and is encompassed in chapters 4 through chapter 22. This is the major section of the book of Revelation. 
the happenings that begin here in chapter 4 clearly take place after the church age is concluded. Therefore, the church is not involved in it. They're not involved in the things which are going on down here on earth as we will see described in these chapters 4 through 19. The word church appears 19 times in the first three chapters. But from chapter uh, 3, uh, 22 until chapter 19, it is not ever mentioned again. Think of it this way. We who are Christians, we are the ambassadors of Christ and the ambassadors of heaven. We know before any nation goes to war, it calls its ambassadors home. So we'll be called home. Heaven is about to go to war. It's going to war with the earth. And it makes sense for heaven's ambassadors to be going home. And so continuing in that vein from chapter 4 until the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 19, God is not addressed as Father anymore. Now He is called God. He's called Lord. He's called Almighty. And other names for which He was known in the Old Testament. But the name Father for which He has been known to the church is entirely absent. With the exception of one place, in Revelation, the 14th chapter in the first verse, there He is mentioned as the Father of Christ, but not the Father of believers. Additionally, there's been changes in the location of the Holy Spirit. He is said to be in the midst of the churches in chapter 2 and 3, but in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we learn that the Holy Spirit is now also in heaven. If you look back at the book of John, chapter 21, 20 through 24, you'll find the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is told that he would be around until the second coming of Christ. This is that point where Jesus was talking to Peter and talking about what was going to happen to him. And, and Peter, being the guy that he was, said, well, what about him? Pointing to John. And, and Jesus said, what's that to you? I'll, I'll take care of him. You just worry about Peter. And so that's basically what we see in there in John 21, chapter, uh, verses 20 through 24. This could only be true a true statement that, that John would be here when the, when the coming of Christ uh, back on this earth uh, in the sense that John was alive in Revelation chapter 1 when God called him up in the Spirit, sent him through a thousand years of time and set him down in the tribulation. <clears throat> and that is where he was shown the second coming of Christ. Because we know John did die. But through his heavenly vision, he saw the Lord coming before he died. So between chapters 3 and 4, the rapture of the church has taken place. And now the church is in heaven. And so we know that the church will not go through the tribulation. Since the tribulation occurs on the earth and the church is no longer on the earth. And now since we have everybody and everything in place, we can look through an open door into heaven and see what is actually going on there while the tribulation is going on down here on earth. One thing we find is that the word throne is one of the key words in Revelation. 
The word throne occurs some 46 times throughout the book. And it's found some 14 times in this chapter 4. Folks, this represents one of the greatest themes of the Revelation. It is the sovereignty of God over all the universe when He is on His throne. In verse 2 there in chapter 4, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place. John was told that he looked into that door of heaven and he saw one that sat on the throne. That was the Father. In verse 3 we know, He who sat is primarily referenced to God the Father. As always, a description of God is possible only by comparison. And here Jasper, to which he is compared, is a clear gem, sort of like our diamond. It also compares him to Sardius, which was a red stone comparable to the ruby. It's believed that the diamond may refer to God's glory, and the ruby refers to his sacrifice. And in verse 3, we're told there is a rainbow. It's round the throne. It was of differing, differing shades of green. It was a complete circle and not an arc like we would see in a, a rainbow now. But you see in heaven all things are complete. And the rainbow has a complete circle. And where usually the rainbow is seen after the storm, here it appears before the storm. This rainbow spoke of God's mercy and His faithfulness. <clears throat> the Scripture says, seated around the throne of the 24 elders, seated on 24 thrones. We need to recognize that these 24 elders do not represent the angels. They do not represent the 12 tribes of Israel. These elders represent the church, the aged saints. The same way that the 24 elders of the Old Testament represented the entire body of priests. If you look back to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, you learn that the number of priests at that time numbered into thousands. And since it was impossible for all the priests to go into the temple at the same time, Levitical priesthood was represented every two weeks by an order of 24 priests. When these 24 priests were in the temple ministering, they were a representative body. And so the 24 elders in heaven are such a body also. <clears throat> we know that they are representative of the church aid, uh, the church-aged saints by number one, by the praise on their lips, which we see in Revelation, the fourth chapter, verses 8 through 9. We see the clothes on their body. We'll have to look forward to that because that's going to be in chapter 19. And then we recognize them as as representative because of the crowns on their head. Revelation 4, verse 4. Each of these three elements is promised to the church. Revelation 3, verse 18 says that we're going to have the clothing. Revelation 3, 21 says we're going to have the crown. Revelation 2, 10 says we'll be on the throne. In verse 6, we find that it's not possible 
to perfectly identify the meaning of this sea of glass. It is a common description of the area in heaven which surrounds the throne of God. We first see that in Exodus 24, verse 10. We will see this description again in Revelation 15th chapter, verse 2, where John says, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And John simply doesn't give us an explanation of this description. Continuing in verse 6, John says that in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and the back. We see this in chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Although there is a lot of conjecture concerning the identity of these four living creatures, there are three major views as to their identity. And only the last view is considered the proper interpretation. The first view, though, is that they represent the four Gospels. Here it is held that the four living creatures represent the four major aspects of the person of Jesus Christ as seen in the four Gospels. The second view, which is also usually discounted, says that the four living creatures are the attributes of the great God who sits upon the throne, and the four great attributes being majesty, strength, personality, and omniscience. And then we have the third view, which is the accepted view that the four living creatures represent the angels whose function it is to bring glory to God. This would be would appear to be the proper interpretation based on the evidence found elsewhere in the Scripture. And as always, it is best to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so we can find that in Ezekiel, the first chapter, verses 4 through 14, the four living creatures, Uh, creatures are described there. And again in chapter 10 of Ezekiel verses 14 through 17 they are identified. Isaiah says in the 6th chapter verses 1 through 3 he describes the seraphim in very similar way to the uh, Ezekiel account. And so the four living creatures are the seraphim or the angels of God And they're involved in two ways. They minister to the holiness of God in worship and they execute His judgment on the world as seen in association with the four seals which we're going to see in chapter 6. We'll be dealing with the four horses there when we begin to open those seals. It was also the four living creatures who will give the angels the bowls of wrath that are poured out upon the earth in the last judgment of the tribulation period that we'll see in chapter 15, verse 7. Looking at chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, uh, we find that this is the worship of the glorified Christ who is the Creator of the world. God is now just about to deal with the physical earth. He's going to deal with the earth in judgment. And before He does, the Creator of the earth is worshipped by the church in heaven. We find this is a wonderful truth wrapped up in differences between the worship of the angels and the worship of the elders. First of all, the four living creatures, the angels, can only celebrate and declare they worship in the third person as witnesses to the whole process of redemption. 
However, the elders, which represent the church, worship with understanding and spiritual intelligence. They worship in the second person because they know the joy of salvation. It is believed that the worship of the elders is of a different character than that of the living ones, the angels. You see, the elders' worship is worship of redeemed persons who is having the mind of Christ enter intelligently into the thoughts of God and know Him personally in His holiness and love. In the worship of persons whose hearts have been won by His exceeding great love and whose conscience have been cleansed by faith in divine testimony to the precious blood of Christ. The angels do not have that. They are there. They are celebrating. They are tending to God. But they do not have what those humans who have come to heaven have because of their decision, their redemption through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we continue to chapter 5. As we move into chapter 5, we'll begin to see and study the book or the scroll, uh, which is the focus of John's attention as he looks at the throne in heaven. This is the deed of earth. Again, this scene opens on the throne of God, surrounded by an emerald rainbow. 24 elders representing the church. A sea of glass separates all other creatures except the angels from the glory of God and the four living creatures who are God's special angelic servants. As all are praising God, we notice a scroll or a book taking on significance in this chapter. The first thing we notice there in that chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that there is no division there. It is continued. It is not divided. You will see the first word of chapter 5 says, hand, indicating a continuation of the flow of thought from chapter 4. So we must remember from chapter 4, we remember that God is seated on His throne. He's surrounded by the angelic beings and elders representing the church of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 5 has said that thunder and lightning and voices are heard signifying the judgment which is about to fall on the earth. But now the focus of John's attention is on the scroll in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. The scroll was rolled up like a wheel. It had on it seven seals. Again, history tells us that the Roman law required that a wheel be rolled up in the same way and sealed seven times. The fact that the scroll was written inside and on the back is an indication that it was completely full and nothing more could be added to it. Chapter 5, verse 9 speaks of a scroll with seals to be opened. When we get to chapter 6, the seals begin to be opened and we see the judgment of God poured out upon the earth. These will indicate the beginning of the tribulation period on the earth. The number 7, again, which we've talked about so many times, is mentioned three times during the tribulation period, referring first to the seals, then to the trumpets, and then to the bowls. 
They are related to each other as in a telescope, with the seven trumpets being contained within the seven seals and the seven bowls contained within the seven trumpets. The seals then are all the judgment for the entire book of Revelation. From the beginning to the end of the tribulation period, as the scroll is unrolled, the seals are broken one by one, slowly revealing what is going to happen. There's no doubt that there's been a great deal of discussion among uh, students of God's Word as to what the scroll might signify. Some believe that the scroll is the book of the New Covenant, while others believe that this is a revelation of God's purpose and counsel concerning the world. There's a third opinion, no doubt, since there are always three opinions there. But I believe this one is correct. The identification of the scroll or the book is the title of the deed to the earth. We are told that it rests in the hand of God. He is seated on His throne in glory and that it really unfolds the rest of the book of Revelation in its entirety. In verses 2 through 4, we are told that John, the receiver of the Revelation, openly reaps when he hears the angels ask with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loosen the seal? And no one on earth, and no one on heaven, no one in heaven, no one under the earth was found to be worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. We find that in 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 verse 5. But one of the elders said to to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Amen. Here we're given three names in the text to identify the one who takes the scroll. The first name is given is that the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Over in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 9, Jacob prophesied to Judah that out of the tribe of Judah would come the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. And so one of the names for the Messiah is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Likewise, the next name that we are told has to do with King David. King David was from the tribe of Judah. So one of the common titles for Jesus when he was on earth was the son of David. This title speaks of dignity, speaks of sovereignty and of courage and of victory. And so the second name given in the text is the root of David. I believe this is one of the most interesting names for Jesus Christ in the text. You see, so far as Jesus' humanity was concerned, he had the roots in David. He came from the tribe of Judah through the descent of David, who was also from the tribe of Judah. Pay close attention here. The text does not say the root was in David. Rather, it says the root was of David. That needs some clarification. You see, this places Jesus before David in ancestry. This tells us Jesus was both the ancestor of David and his root. His humanity, Jesus was from David, and in his humanity, he was before David. Jesus is about to take the scroll and unfold the eternal plan of God, for he is the eternal God himself. 
And then the third name is the greatest of all three. Jesus is now presented as the, as the Lamb who was slain. We will find the word Lamb referring to Jesus Christ is used 28 times in this book. Back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 7, if you remember that story with Isaac and his father, Isaac asked his father Abraham, where is the Lamb? Again, in John's Gospel, the first chapter, verse 29, we're told that John said when he was baptizing Jesus Christ, Behold the Lamb of God. And so now John sees this one who is about to take the title deed to the earth as the lion. You see there in verse 6 and verse 7, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. First we see the Lamb is standing in the midst of the throne. This is not a position that you would normally expect to see a slain lamb to be in. A slain lamb lies down, but this lamb is standing. Folks, we need to understand that this is a picture of the resurrected Christ in heaven, standing in the midst of the throne. We know in heaven, the Lord is usually pictured as being seated, signifying that the work of redemption is complete. But now the slain lamb is standing, ready to move out from the glory of heaven to the earth where judgment is going to break out. And there He will reclaim earth. Secondly, we find that the slain lamb is standing, suggesting the marks of the death of Christ will be visible throughout eternity. And when we see Jesus in heaven, we'll see the same thing that the disciples and the apostles saw when Jesus came out of the grave. We will never be allowed to forget that it was through His death that we have an entrance into heaven where we will spend eternity. Or we will never forget that we are there because Jesus loved us enough to die on the cross for our sins. The third important thing to note about this Lamb is that He is strong. The picture of seven horns is a picture of strength. Even though the Lamb was slain, He has not been weakened. He has the strength necessary to fulfill the promise to the redeemed of the earth. The fourth noteworthy fact is that this lamb is searching. The seven eyes represent his all-seeing wisdom. The seven eyes are said to be the seven spirits which are sent out to all the earth. He is all omniscient and omnipresent. We find many comparisons can be made between the lion and the lamb. We know the lamb is a reference to his first coming when he died on the cross. Whereas the lion is a reference to his second coming when he will judge. The lamb is a symbol of his meekness. The lion is a symbol of his majesty. As the lion, as the lamb, he is savior. As the lion, he is sovereign. As the lamb, he is judged. As the lion, he is judging. The lamb lamb represents the grace of God. 
The lion represents the government of God. Verse 6 says that the lamb is found in the midst of the throne of God and we worship him because of where he is. Looking at the activity of the one worship, there in verse 7 we see that He takes the book out of the right hand of Him who sits on the throne. Amen. And here Jesus reclaims His authority over all the earth. Here He receives the kingdom from His Father and takes control of it through the tribulation period in preparation for the millennium when He will reign forever and ever. So we find first of all that He takes that scroll The second thing that happens now is that he receives the worship of heaven. When the Lamb takes the scroll, the weeping ends and the praise begins. Notice also that until Jesus came forth, John was weeping. But as soon as Jesus comes and takes the book, praise begins to break out in heaven. The central focus of this chapter is on worship. It is a treatise on worship. No one is really capable of unfolding all the truths about the about the, the worship that we see here in these closing verses. It's beyond human description. In verse 8, it is believed that the prayers of the saints referred here is the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples with the Lord's Prayer in chapter 6 of Matthew, verses 9 through 13. The words, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is ultimately going to be fulfilled when the Lord takes control of the earth. And it's not until that time that this prayer will be fully answered. No doubt every aspect of the sacred music seems to be reflected in that hymn that's recorded there in in Revelation, the fifth chapter, verses 9 through 10. This hymn has been called a worship hymn. It's been called a missionary hymn. It's been called a gospel song, a devotional hymn, and a prophetic hymn. And then we have the choruses in this song. For in verses 8 through 10, the redeemed or the believers begin to worship. Then in verses 11 through 12, there are the new participants. Literally, the angels are innumerable as they begin to proclaim the worthiness of the Lamb who has received the squirrel. In verse 13, the chorus of praise is joined by every creature in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and in the sea. All saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the praise goes out from the throne like ripples of water because of the redemption wrought by the Lamb who was slain. Finally there in verse 14, the four living creatures proclaim Amen. And the 24 elders who represent the church fall down and worship the Lamb. You see, if you're a believer, you can sing praise directly to God because of the joy of your redemption and the triumph you have in Christ. You need to realize the angels can only sing about it because they've never experienced personally the joy that salvation brings. Amen. It's possible that the thing that will fuel the fire of praise in heaven forever and ever is the knowledge that we are the redeemed children of God. And that crescendo of praise will grow and grow as the years go by in eternity. The longer we're in heaven, the more we will know about how much we have to be happy for. 
The song we will sing forever and ever is worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Paul said something of this same thing over in Colossians. I keep referring to Paul and John together because there was so much that they they brought to us uh, in their writings and in their thoughts. In Colossians, the first chapter, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, "...giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him all fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. I think that's the, that's the same story that, that, that John was seeing and talking about there. We come to chapter 6. Whereas worship was the theme of chapter 4 and chapter 5, we now find that wrath is the subject of chapter 6. Here, each of the seven seals is broken as the scroll is unrolled and all the tribulation period is outlined for us. We're going to study these seals that are on the title deed of the earth. We begin to focus on the first four seals. Folks, at this point, man's day on earth is dying. And Jesus, the worthy Lamb of chapter 5, is about to take back control of the earth. The four broken seals in this section reveals the events that will bring the seven years of tribulation. As each seal is opened, history unfolds itself before John. As we begin to look at this section, we must remember one general fact that is basic to the understanding of it, We've so often seen the Jews divided all time into two ages. There was the present age, which is wholly under the dominion of evil and wholly bad, beyond all reformation or cure. And there's the age to come, which is the golden age of God. Now in between the two ages, there was to come a terrible time of judgment and of total destruction. And leading up to that time, there was to come a time of terrors, which were the signs of the end. And it is this end time that John now sees in his vision. There is being disclosed to him all that is happening when this world is in the process of being dissolved before the new world begins. Basically, in this series of visions, he is seeing in advance the end of time as we know it. Now, there is one general opinion that we need to see. 
And this first section of the of the vision found in verses one through eight there in chapter six. The authorized versions uh, it's reported they consistently make a mistake. You find in the King James and the New King James and some of those others that it repeatedly follows one form of the Greek text which makes each of the four living creatures in turn say, come and see. As we see there in verses 1, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 7. But folks, in all the best Greek manuscripts, there is no and see. It is simply come. We need to understand this is not an invitation to John to come and see. It is a summons to the four horses and their riders, one by one, to come forward on the stage of history. The Greek word there for the word come is an action word that means now. Come now. In fact, the, uh, the uh, Phillips uh, translation of, of this verse says, come out. And so we need to understand that the four living creatures who are the cherubim who surround the throne have the task of summoning the actors in the final act of the divine and cosmic drama to come forward on the stage. It's difficult for us today to understand the significance of the imagery of the horse used here. We know that the, horse, that the Jews held the horse in great awe and reverence. To them, horses represented God's activity on earth and the forces He used to accomplish His divine purpose. We look back over to uh, the book of Job chapter 39 beginning in 19 we find the description of the horse there it says have you given the horse strength have you clothed his neck with thunder can you frighten him like a locust his majestic snorting strikes terror he paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength he gallops into the clash of arms he mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and the javelin. He devours the distance with fierce and rage because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. This is a, it's a, it's a great description of the horse and it's, it's very probable that the imagery of the horse in Revelation 6 is connected to the vision of the Old Testament prophet in uh, Zechariah. We read there also where he gives a, a description and a thought of, of how the, the, the horse um, relates to what is happening here. In Zechariah 6 uh, verses 1 through 8, Zechariah says, And then I turned and, behold, and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dapple horses, strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven 
who go out from the station before the Lord of the earth. The one with the black horse is going to the north country. The white are going after them. The dapple are going towards the south country. Then the strong steed went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. And so they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he came to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives. And there's a lot of words there that I don't understand. And who have come from Babylon and go to the same day and enter the house of Josiah and the son of Zephaniah. So this this image, this this using of the horse, uh, as we are going to see in these the opening of these seals, is not anything new to the Lord. We find that is already mentioned there in the in the uh, Old Testament. In chapter six, verse one, John here sees the land, the lamb open one of the seals. At the same time, he hears one of the four creatures saying with a voice like thunder, "Come." And as we said earlier, this is the calling of the white horse to appear on the stage. The white horse and oriental imagery is the symbol of the conqueror. And so here in the first part of the tribulation, the white horse rides across the earth. Now some are persuaded that this is a reference to Jesus Christ, who is said to be on a white horse when we get to chapter 19. But this cannot be. This is not the correct interpretation for several reasons. First, this rider's weapon in Revelation 6 is a bow without any arrows. Whereas in chapter 19, Christ's weapon is a sword. Secondly, in chapter 6, we are told the crown is a Stephanos, the victor's crown. However, again in chapter 19, Christ wears the diadema, the kingly crown upon his head. And finally, in chapter 6, the first appearance of judgment on earth is just beginning while chapter 19, the white horse, signifies the end of time. Christ is the climax of tribulation. He ends it all. Therefore, it is determined that the rider upon the white horse here is none other than the false Christ, the Antichrist, riding into the world at the beginning of the tribulation period and bringing peace to the world. And so his bow has no arrows. I guess there's probably no police too. (laughs) He conquers peacefully. The event that began the tribulation is the Antichrist covenant with the people of Israel and their belief in his protection. We find in, in various scriptures in the Old Testament concerning uh, the Antichrist. We know that the Antichrist has two meanings. His primary meaning is one that it is opponent is an opponent to Christ, is opposed to Christ. Its second meaning is one who comes instead of Christ. And John, first John chapter two, verse twenty two, we read who is a liar, a person who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. The person who denies the Father and the Son is an Antichrist. John used the Antichrist four times in in first and second John, but he did not use that name in the book of Revelation. 
He uses the man of sin, signifies that it will be sin itself with satanic crafts and powers. There will be no length of, of, weak, of wickedness to which he will not go, no forms of evil to which he will be a stranger, no depths of corruption. The Lamb is the Savior of sinners. The man of sin is the persecutor and slayer of the saints. The Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, with Judah, for overall peace. He declares himself to be God. Only one of the world's inhabitants are allowed to worship. The Antichrist guarantees peace for Israel, allows them to rebuild their temple without any Islamic reprisal. But then the peace is betrayed. The book of Daniel, along with Revelation chapter 13, also reveals to the reader that in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist declares himself to be God. His false prophet sets up a king, a living image of the Antichrist that must be worshipped. And at this point, the Jewish people totally reject their would-be Savior. The response to their rejection, the Antichrist become obsessed with annihilating all the Jewish people during the second and last half of the tribulation. In 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, verse 3, when the people say there is peace and security, destruction will strike them as suddenly as labor pains come to a pregnant woman and they will not be able to escape. In Daniel, we have the prediction of the destruction of the temple, the sanctuary. We're told that it is destroyed by the people of the prince that shall come. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolation are determined. Daniel, ninth chapter, verse 27, Then he shall confirm a covenant making a binding agreement with many for one week. But in the midst of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolation, even until the consumption, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. We know there is a peace treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. For a week is seven years, and we see that in the middle of the seven years, this treaty is broken. Isaiah referred to a covenant with death and an agreement with hell and, and, and which is broken. In Isaiah the 28th chapter, verses 14 through 19, Therefore hear the message from the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people that are in Jerusalem, because you said we have entered into a covenant with death and we have an agreement with Sheol. So when the overwhelming scourge makes its choice, it cannot reach us, since we have made lies our refuge and have come, have concealed ourselves inside falsehood. And that brought forth a broken covenant. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am laying a foundation stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for the sure foundation. Whoever believes firmly will not see, will not set, will not act hastily. And it will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge of ties and flood will overflow your hiding places. 
then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming surge sweeps by, you will be trampled by it. As often as it sweeps through, it will carry you away, for it will sweep by morning after morning in the day. But understanding this message will bring sheer terror at night. It was not good for Israel to make a treaty with the Antichrist. That's right. <clears throat> the rider on the red horse was given a, a great sword. This was an assassin's sword. Uh, it was used to, to cut animals and persons. The second rider, the second horse, personifies war. He takes away the treaty of the Antichrist has established on earth. He will appear to be the answer to all of man's needs. We know that since the day of Cain killed, when Cain killed his brother Abel, the world has known very little else but war. Someone has estimated that in nearly 6,000 years of recorded history, there have been some 15,000 wars. Of the 200 or so conflicts between 1898 since 1898, that 75 of them have taken place since World War II. I've got just a little bit more, if y'all. Not much. How old are you, brother? We need to get through these horses. <laughs> when the red horse comes, it's a time of murder, assassination, bloodshed, revolution, and war which comes out in every aspect that we can possibly imagine. You do know that there is no major section of the world today where some kind of conflict is not going on or is about to start. In verses 5 and 6, we see the, the third seal. War and famine usually go together. The color black is often connected with famine. A shortage of food will always drive up prices, force the government to ration what is available. The denarius referred to here was the standard daily wage for laborers. We look back to the New Testament, Matthew 20, verses 1 and 2. says, when the landlord had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A quart of wheat was about the least amount of food that could sustain one person for one day. The text also says that oil and wine, which was considered to be the rich man's luxuries, were to be exempt from this judgment. In other words, the affluent will escape the major hardships and the masses will be hungry. They're not going to mess with the, with the uh, oil and wine, just the, the wheat and the barley. We've seen that although John was telling of the signs which were to precede the end, he was actually painting them in terms of actual historical situations which men would recognize. One other interesting point here is that it has been suggested that in the midst of the four living creatures comes the voice telling of the famine prices of the wheat and barley. We have seen that the four living creatures, creatures may symbolize all that is best in nature, and this may be taken as nature's protest against famine amidst men. John now sees two sights. Death is riding a pale horse, and hell, which is the realm of death, follows after him. You can see that as these two rides forth, they are armed with weapons of swords, of hunger, of death, of wild beast. 
Ezekiel 14, verse 21 describes these weapons as the four severe judgments. And it indicates the pestilence that is in connection with the beast. And it refers to beasts like men. The Greek word for, for beast appears 38 times in Revelation. On all occasions, it has to do with the beast, with the beast being the false messiah. Whatever your interpretation, the rider on this fourth horse will reap a terrible harvest from this earth. He kills 25% of the entire population of the world. This prediction by John perfectly aligns with Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24, verses 3 through 8. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrow. And so what response should we have today to all that we have read, knowing that that what is coming? I believe we have understood clearly the teachings of these three chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6. We who know the Lord as personal Savior ought to rejoice in His provisions for us, even though we mourn for those here on earth who will be suffering. You see, while the tribulation is mounting in momentum below, we will be worshiping God around the throne. And although the events of the seven years of tribulation belong entirely to that time, they will not begin suddenly without some warning beforehand. Future events cast their shadows before them. Problems will begin to intensify before the tribulation. Folks, that fact ought to make us look with a sense of urgency on the task which is ours as believers. Prophecy, correctly understood, should be a greater motivation to evangelism. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, this foretelling of what is to come here on earth. And we are so grateful, Father, that You have provided a way that we'll be reviewing that and viewing that from above with You around the throne. Thank You, Father, for Your Word. Thank You for John. Thank You for being able to use him to tell us what is going to happen. pray that You go with us each day, Father, as we prepare now for what is to come. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.